potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Kim Gold, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist and Certified Personal Trainer. We'll be discussing her area of practice and specialty, eating disorders, body image issues, and compulsive exercise. Welcome to the show, Kim. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. Um, so what are your credentials and experience? So I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I am trauma trained, also known as EMDR trained. It's a therapeutic tool to help the brain reprocess the way it experiences traumatic memories. I also, as you already introduced me, have my certified personal training certificate. So I'm a CPT and then I am also a former bar instructor. So my parents like to joke that I'm just collecting the alphabet throughout the years. <laughs> I think I'm missing a few, but I'm not against it. Um, and then my experience is, uh, well, starting way back when I was a fledgling therapist, I worked at a family counseling nonprofit uh, in Austin. All of my clinical experience post-grad school has been in Austin, Texas. I also worked at an eating disorder treatment center in one of their outpatient programs. I also worked at a inpatient psych hospital for suicidal, homicidal, psychotic detoxing and decompensating. I worked at a eating disorder group practice and then most recently opened up uh, my own practice, my own group practice called autonomy therapy. And so, yeah, I've had a nice diverse experience of both treatment center and private practice for mental health. And then simultaneously, which aids in my specialization of compulsive exercise, became a certified personal trainer and bar instructor um, since about 2017. So a little bit of of all the things. Awesome. So Mm -hmm. at your practice, Autonomy Therapy, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? So yes, we do. And you and I talked about this earlier. It is less common to find 
clinicians that have my specialization in mental health that accept insurance because of, you know, insurance pays a fraction oftentimes of what a therapist could make charging out of pocket. They're also a bit complicated if something gets denied or if a client's claims aren't running. So it just, as an eating disorder specialist, we're already putting in a lot of time to consult with other professionals in the field, like a dietitian and a doctor, a trainer. So to not get paid the full rate is often pretty a pretty big deterrent for a lot of therapists. However, it felt important to me to be as accessible as possible. So while I do have a private pay rate, I also accept United Behavioral Health, which is linked to Optum Behavioral Health. In addition to, I hired and trained two therapists that work at Autonomy Therapy that accept Blue Cross and United. And that's Blue Cross PPO or HMO as well? PPO. Okay, cool. Um, do you have a sliding scale or like a, a, a tier of fees? I do offer sliding scale spots as do the therapists on staff. That being said, because they are, you know, we're all accepting insurance, which is, I'll be totally transparent. All of them are less than what our standard rate is. That's just a contracted rate with insurance because they um, don't, I guess they make the decision that they are not going to pay therapists their full rate. We have a limited number of sliding scale spots. And I'd like to think of those even more as sort of like scholarship spots, so to speak, where it's not totally subsidized. And yet we open a limited number of spots on our caseload to be able to accommodate clients that maybe got off of insurance or, you know, recently I actually in January got off of Blue Cross and so being that a lot of my clients had been either fully covered or were only paying like a small copay on Blue Cross, I did open up a few more additional sliding scale spots to just accommodate that transition. That though, I try to offer kind of like two options and it is like really just a conversation between myself mm-hmm. and the client. I don't like to necessarily throw out specific numbers because right. it really is dependent on that like treatment in general, it's dependent on that client's needs. Got it. Do you have any weekend or evening appointments available? The, I don't have any weekend right now. My weekends, I'm trying to get much more boundary about, which is part of my self-care. And evenings, the latest I'll go now is my last appointment would be at 5 p.m. Okay. Is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? I like that you said career and not job because my first thought immediately was like, well, I worked at a pizza bistro, Um, but I don't think that (laughs) counts, does it? So yes, being a therapist uh, is my first career and my, my passion that I sort of just fell into and I love it and kind of everything else, even the, like the projects that I take on or it's all influenced by my mental health background. So what, what drew you to being a therapist? How did that come about? Well, like I said, I kind of fell into it. I would say like I tripped and landed. <laughs> first. Um, I found out my junior year of undergrad that I could graduate a year early. And I was pretty hesitant to do that. 
I think that was probably like the more graceful way of saying it. I had a full meltdown when my my dad, I told him at the time and he encouraged it for obvious reasons. I was going to an out of state school, which is not college in general isn't cheap. And that certainly was not. So, you know, I figured after that conversation, why not put in a few applications to places? I was a psychology major in undergrad. So I knew I probably couldn't do much with that undergraduate degree. It's so general. I would inevitably have to go to grad school. I just didn't know what that meant or what I would specialize in. I just, all three years I'd been like, oh yeah, I'm going to go to grad school after this, sort of like a general throwing it out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And when the day finally came, I had to get a, a bit more granular about what I actually wanted to do or focus on. And so I talked to a couple of professors and ultimately told them that I was interested in doing something maybe with eating disorders. And then I had taken a psych of divorce class and in that class had realized how much I think I would have enjoyed working or would enjoy working with couples in some capacity. And so I ended up when I was talking to these professors, learning that marriage and family therapy was a budding degree in the mental health field. And I got that recommended to me. I think I bought like LMFT for dummies and read through that. (laughs) That's like, I think that's like an actual book. It's probably somewhere (laughs) under like the millions of other stacks that I have. And it just seemed interesting. I figured why not? The irony being like, I personally had never been to therapy. I, my family was not necessarily super open about mental health. And so I figured I, I would try it. I had never, I'd always thought it seemed cool to be a therapist. I was like, well, maybe I can like make my own schedule or something. Um, and, like sit in one of those fancy chairs with like the mug of tea and like look very professional. <laughs> and I applied to some schools for marriage and family therapy and ended up uh, going to Northwestern for my master's and just realized how much I loved it. So I got really lucky that, feels sort of like the field found me in a way. Mm-hmm. What got you focused in on uh, eating disorders and body image issues, and compulsive exercise? Yeah, it's interesting. I think like most therapists, when we specialize in something, we probably have a personal tie to whatever that thing is. Um, and when, and I had always been like really big into like health and, and fitness and wellness. And all of those of course are like in quotes. <laughs> And so um, I, I had never, I think all of that had been so normalized. Like now looking back, hindsight's 2020, I was raised and, you know, with family and school and coaches, teams, then going to undergrad, being in a sorority, I'd been saturated in like eating disorder cultures and and behaviors and diet culture in general. And it was so normalized that I, I think originally I was just interested in like being an exercise physiologist, but the school Mm -hmm. I went to like didn't have something like that. So I just went into psychology and started realizing more and more, I think in undergrad, how crazy it seemed like the, the standards for health in general and how bought in I had been that I didn't even realize until, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And when I went to grad school, originally, I, I think I'd probably framed it to like my undergrad professors and I consulted with them. I, you know, I'm into health and 
you know, wellness and all of that. And then when I got to grad school and we, I took a class about, I forget what it was called. um, I think maybe like systemic assessment or something. It was like a diagnosis class. So we studied the class (laughs) and the professor was fantastic. She was so funny. Um, Her name was Danielle Black, Dr. Danielle Black. She was so engaging. And I just remember being fascinated. We got to the chapter on eating disorders. I remember reading through for like anorexia and orthorexia and just being like, wait, that's an eating disorder. Like I did that. Like Mm -hmm. I, you know, and I, oh, that's what bulimia is. I had a friend in undergrad that used to just casually uh, purge after dinner. And her thing was, you know, you feel less bloated after. And I didn't even question that. Um, and so it just shows, it showed me how normalized and how ill, you know, that behavior was and got me, that I think really kicked off me being like super just fascinated and, you know, pun intended, like hungry for more knowledge and education regarding like, okay, wait, if this was really ill and disordered and everyone is think everyone around me validated those behaviors, like even when I was restricting and I lost weight, I got praised for it. And yet I remember how miserable I made myself and those around me at the time, like internally, I was, I was very unwell. Then it stands to reason that other people probably have no idea that their behaviors are, are this disordered and sick and damaging. So just real, having that realization, that's what I think really catapulted my passion for this work. Mm-hmm. Now you're a Hayes provider as well, right? I am. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that stands for and what that is? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so I'm a Hayes informed provider. It Hayes stands for health at every size, H-A-E-S. And it's interesting when I first heard about Hayes, or someone used that term with me, my first thought was, oh, it's like those shows on TLC that glorify just, you know, people in a big body can have a wonderful life. And, and yet it wasn't explained to me in a way that helped me understand the, the enormity of it and how important it really was. So that's what most people think was what my original thoughts were and kind of brush it off. And yet health at every size doesn't mean healthy at every size, which is a distinction no one had really made for me. And within that, I think our culture being that thinness is glorified and weight loss is glorified, anticipates that meaning folks in larger bodies. And yet that is across the board. Someone could be in a really small body or have lost a ton of weight and we're projecting on them our own fat phobia and praising that weight loss and saying, oh my God, that's fantastic. And yet this person could have just gotten into a car accident and had their jaw wired shut. They could have been suffering from an eating disorder or have gone through a divorce and, and been so depressed and having so many suicidal thoughts. They just couldn't even get out of bed. They were decompensating. It would be criteria for a psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. And yet our culture, because then this is praised and seen as healthy looks at that weight loss and is like, that's amazing. And yet reinforces all of these either really disordered beliefs or is, is placing this, this false positive lens on a really traumatic catastrophic moment in someone's life, just as much as they're looking at someone in a larger body and, and making all these judgments that they're, they're 
eating a certain way or they're not exercising. And, and all, again, I use the word projection because that's all it is, is we project our own judgments on other people's bodies and make assumptions about them, thinking we know what's going on behind the scenes. So Hayes essentially says we can never judge someone's level of health or determine someone's le level of health or health behaviors simply by looking at them because body diversity is a very real thing. Even if we all ate the same and move the same, our bodies would still look different and hold weight differently. And so Hayes is a, it's a social justice movement, really also recognizing that it is not a moral imperative to even seek health. You know, I think the diet industry has done a really, um, it's done a number on, on looking at people and judging their worth based on their level of commitment to wellness, whatever that means, typically really disordered behaviors, just to lose weight, the pursuit of weight loss is like the most important thing. And in reality, the greatest predictor of health outcomes isn't diet and exercise, it's socioeconomic status, because that mm -hmm. determines if someone has access to healthcare, or if they have to work multiple jobs just to get food on the table, if they're able to get a proper education or it, those things, you know, if someone is struggling to make ends meet and is, you know, trying to support a family, eating kale is not a priority. It's the last part. And maybe someone's uh, nutrition access is a gas station, not a whole Foods. So there's so much privilege in being able to align and take advantage of what our culture sees as healthy. Got it. I love that approach. I think mm -hmm. that's such a necessary way to frame things. I mean, it's just true. You know, so that's my short version. <laughs> I, I could go on, you know. Well, I love it. And I love that you work from that perspective. I think it's so important in helping folks. Um, so tell us a little bit more about you. What are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you watch, music, et cetera? TV shows the office a uh, hundred times over <laughs> i have probably seen every season and i i get my fiance and my sister make fun of me for this but i just also have the most random quotes that will pop into my head from the office and i'll just use them as my own and then i'll start reciting an entire scene me as like multiple people so i think <laughs> i a part of me like is robert california probably so <laughs> Gotcha. It's like really intense and making people <laughs> uncomfortable all the time. So that's like the show that I watch when I want to, uh, well, anytime just to get a little <laughs> boost. It's a comfort show. Any particular hobbies that you like kind of tend to every week or? Um, well, I, I don't know if hobbies, we would define that as different than like self-care. Um, well, I think they can be one and the same. Yeah, I think probably some of them. I, well, I love, I probably, it doesn't come as a surprise. I love movement and I find different ways to incorporate in, that into my life daily, whether that's even just like a literally swinging on the hammock is my movement. But, it, you know, my body, I try not to sit. I, well, I do a lot of sitting during the day with clients, but I, I also try to either start my day with it or wrap my day up with something, whatever it is. I bought myself a mini trampoline because it seemed fun. I've got rollerblades. Nice. Thank you. So anything to kind of mix it up and, and play, like I find that movement can be so playful and 
kind of silly. Yeah. And then I love art or like crafting in some capacities. So I wouldn't say that I by any means I'm like an artiste and I have like an abundance of canvas paintings, like blank canvases just sitting in a closet because I'll just get inspired <laughs> sometimes and whip it out. And I let Pinterest like minimalist canvas paintings sort of just inform what I paint next. That's cool. Thank I love you. that. So roller skates, are they inline or quads? Uh, inline. That took nice. a second. I want to be like they're hand-me-downs. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they're inline. I, yeah, I used not. to roller skate on quads regularly. That's why I ask. I have Oh, well, I've seen like so many cool videos of people wearing really retro like the quad skates mm-hmm. and doing all these cool things like skating backwards and like I just mm-hmm. want to go somewhere fast not being like on a bike <laughs> in a car <laughs> on top of the world that's a good reason yeah. um, <laughs> well thank you for sharing that with us um, sure. jumping into eating disorders and the like um, I believe the DSM-5 outlines eight different eating disorders, including PICA, rumination disorder, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, or ARFID, and anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, as well as other specified feeding and eating disorder and unspecified feeding or eating disorder. Which of these do you work with? Good question. It's because, yeah, eating disorders is pretty vague. Um, But more often than not, I'm working with anorexia, orthorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, and other specified eating disorder, which might just essentially encompass a broader range of disordered eating or exercise behaviors. So, But to make a distinction between that and some of the other ones that you named, my specialization is working with folks who struggle with disordered eating, compulsive exercise behaviors as a result or kind of directly stemming from uh, concerns about body image. So more often than not, it's disordered behaviors influenced by a desire to lose weight and be smaller and a fear of gaining weight. So the ones that that doesn't necessarily attend to from what you listed would be, and it's, it's funny, I, I'm actually realizing I don't know if it's pica or pica. I think I've heard it said is pica. I've heard it pica, but I'm not sure. Pica? Okay, well, here we are. See, I also, neither of us work with this. So it probably <laughs> makes sense. Uh, which is, however, PICA is a compulsive eating disorder in which people will eat non-food items like dirt, clay, flaking paint. Those are the most commonly eaten. And it, that's probably more like what you'd see in that show on TLC, like My Strange Addiction, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. that movie, if you've seen it, Swallow with Haley Bennett, where I think she just like goes around like swallowing a lot of pretty dangerous items. Interesting. So I, I yeah, I don't work with that. Um, and then rumination disorder or rumination syndrome is a rare behavioral disorder in which food is actually regurgitated or brought back up. Um, and then it's either re-chewed, re-swallowed, or spit out. And that, it, it, it's, it's interesting, actually, that is not necessarily a distressing experience for the person who is doing the regurgitating mm-hmm. and then like re-chewing, et cetera. So I don't see that one often. Um, and so I can't really take 
too much of a dive into that. And then the third one that you had named that I see a lot less of is ARFID or Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, ARFID. And ARFID is more commonly seen associated with maybe sensory processing disorders or autism. autism. Yeah, a lot of the times, and it's not just picky eating. Though the reason that I don't see a lot of ARFID is because, again, more a lot of the time that's associated with folks that have sensory processing concerns or autism, which is not a specialty of mine. And when I have seen it, it's with parents who have brought adolescents in historically and said, my child has been diagnosed with anorexia. And in fact, working with that child um, or adolescent, I've recognized a decent amount of behaviors that would maybe overlap with an autism diagnosis. And that child just hasn't been tested yet. And unfortunately, if they haven't already been tested, and I may be the first provider to present this to the parents and kind of challenge and say, the diff- even though ARFID and anorexia actually look really similar in terms of the symptoms, like cutting foods out and um, losing a ton of weight in a pretty short amount of time and, and looking malnourished and not getting the nutrients they need, the main significant difference between the two is that anorexia is um, an obsession or fixation on weight loss and body image, and the weight loss is directly related to that as opposed to ARFID that is not the case. Um, so I hope that was helpful. That makes sense to me. Okay. And so, uh, what, you know, what's the difference between other specified feeding eating disorder and unspecified feeding or eating disorder? You know, that is a really good question. And that is one that I'm going to have to Google probably with you at some point, because really, I, and I would say that this rings true for a decent amount of the community as well. There's so many nuances in disordered eating behaviors, and someone could meet the criteria 99% for anorexia. And if in the DSM-5, at least, it was acknowledged that you had to meet criteria if or part of meeting criteria was that a refusal to maintain at least 85% of ideal body weight. And so that essentially means that the diagnosis is contingent on the BMI, uh, which I don't know if you know this, or maybe listeners know this, but the BMI is, there's so many issues with it, even though it's still used in our medical system. It's total bullshit. It's yes. And I started saying it total bullshit. (laughs) Um, it was developed around 200 years ago by a mathematician as just a way to classify for a research study. And a lot of those classifications were based on folks, men with an abundance of privilege. So cis, heterosexual, Caucasian, thin bodies, um, the sort of standard, I suppose, for, I'm putting that in air quotes, of course, but for, for again, the, the epitome of privilege. So mm-hmm. this, this person was incredibly racist um, and he worked with people that were incredibly racist and that studied eugenics and 
it's insanely problematic. And so it actually, the BMI is a, a huge piece of what perpetuates systemic racism. And that's why the work that I do is a lot of like social justice work mm-hmm. and social justice activism. And so kind of going back to part of the reason that I kind of, when you say that, I'm like, uh, I don't, I don't know that I can like outline the difference between those two that sounds so similar is because I don't actually use the DSM. I use it 5% of the time, which is literally just to offer a a sort of general diagnosis, but I as a therapist do not feel comfortable diagnosing. And so I can rattle off kind of the more obvious ones based on what's in the DSM. And yet I look to it rarely because it's already cutting out people or making people who have, uh, needing an active eating disorder, doing a lot of harm to themselves, feel like they don't deserve to seek care because they don't meet the exact criteria for what's in the DSM. When in reality, this person could be killing themselves, which is a lot of what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned a term that I, I'm not familiar with. I had never heard um, orthorexia. Can you explain that? Yeah. So orthorexia was originally coined in the 1990s. It's essentially an obsession with clean or healthful eating and the irony being that's what I see so much more often in my work on Instagram it's like fitspirations or whatever mm-hmm. um, and so it's you know someone who is is eating clean in quotes or you know constantly crash dieting and gets re- they fake food allergies. We hear that all the time, right? Like someone claiming, oh, I'm gluten intolerant or lactose intolerant or sugar intolerant because they don't want to be presented with one of these foods because they're terrified of eating it, terrified of weight gain, of not eating in a way that is like all organic or so really what is pushed as like an, an ideal of health in diet culture is literally like an eating disorder in disguise Got it. and it's yeah so it's pretty insidious yeah i'd never heard that term before and that's a, a good term for me to know and add to my clinical vocabulary i appreciate that yeah can you tell us a little bit about each of the eating disorders you work with and how how they may present clinically sure so Typically with anorexia, it is hyperfixation on an obsession with thinness and weight loss. A really, really good example of what it might sound like to be in an anorexic brain. And I think this might be called the anorexic brain. It's a TED talk by Dr. Laura Hill. It's fantastic. And it's really overwhelming um, because this person is just constantly thinking about what am I going to eat next? How many calories is in that? Have I lost weight? Have I gained weight? They constantly are body checking, which is, you know, if you're, it can look different for everyone, but this, if you pass a reflective surface, looking Mm -hmm. at that surface and immediately having judgments about the body, it's, you know, wrapping a hand around the wrist. So the fingers touch, but it's having this sort of using the body to essentially scale whether you've gained or lost weight. And then that determines worth with anorexia. A lot of the times you'll see pretty drastic weight loss. And here's where it gets a little difficult is because someone could maybe present as being in a larger body and yet still be 
meeting criteria for anorexia because they could be starving themselves and malnourished, but because there was this really unhelpful criteria related to the BMI, if someone's BMI was air quotes too high, they wouldn't get the help that they needed. So anorexia and eating disorders in general, a super high risk as a clinician working with this population because they have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness and anorexia only now challenged by diabolemia, which is the intentional tampering of insulin for weight loss is the most, uh, the eating disorder with the highest mortality rate. So for, for diabolemia, obviously that is going to really affect the body in in an incredibly negative way and super destructive. And with anorexia, not only is this person starving themselves, totally malnourished, their body is slowly shutting down. There's also a super high, and I don't know the exact statistics. I'm sure this is Googleable. There's a super high rate of, of suicide because the, it just feels so overwhelming, helpless, hopeless that there, there's not really any other, it doesn't feel like there's any other option. People can feel really trapped. Um, so, and, and then I explained orthorexia, typically that's, and most people who have orthorexia will either come to me because someone else recommended that they come or they're coming in for something else. And then we're getting a better sense of like, have you ever considered that you're inability to consume like a piece of bread without having a full meltdown or immediately running afterwards. Like, have you ever considered that that's actually disordered behavior? And it's like, they've never considered that. Um, Bulimia is typically like a a binge followed by some sort sort of compensatory method for releasing calories or energy from the body that was just consumed. So and like purging in some way, it can look different. So it can be anything from the most common one is typically vomiting. Um, And then there's also exercise, people purging using exercise or laxatives, diuretics, um, sitting in a sauna for hours and hours and hours, also an attempt at purging. And yet a lot of the times it's, it's harder and again, this is part of Hayes is we literally can never judge someone based on the way that they look. So mm-hmm. that stands pretty true for eating disorders is a lot of the times when you look at someone who has an active eating disorder, you may not be able to tell because even though the majority of people who are purging might be doing so, and I've seen it related or having comorbidity with mood disorders and trauma, but it it's, could be core comorbid with those, the primary focus for a lot of folks that I see is weight loss. And yet most people don't realize all forms of purging are pretty ineffective for purging, I'll just say calories, which is a unit of energy calories from the body on, on average, the most would be about like 12 to 13% um, for, for most methods. Um, And that's obviously super dangerous, especially, you know, you can mess up your digestive system, your colon, you can burn holes in the lining of the esophagus and the stomach from all the stomach acid that comes up. You can erode the enamel on your teeth um, and have a complete imbalance of electrolytes in your system. So 
in addition to that, then you have binge eating disorder, which is also one that I see. And binging is, I've seen it more associated with a way to like manage emotions or associate with trauma, also comorbid with a mood disorder, substance abuse, as well as I, I see that related to binge eating and bulimia a decent amount. And with binge eating, there's the binging and no compensatory method of releasing calories in the body. And so that's, those are like the primary. Did I miss any? I think those are. No, I, I think you got them all. Um, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That's some good information. So what approaches are generally recommended in treating eating disorders and, and what's your approach? Really, really good question. So as an LMFT, my degree is marriage and family therapy. I don't just see couples. That's so much less who I see. It's more how I see people. It's just in terms of their systems. So if someone comes in for an eating disorder what I or disordered eating, what I usually tell them up front while I'm encouraging them to seek a treatment team, which I will elaborate on, is we'll actually probably be doing like having conversations, like 60% of our conversations will be actually about, you know, like your history, family of origin, relationships, limiting beliefs, um, attachment traumas and all of that. And then like 40 or 35% maybe is the actual eating disorder behaviors, because really every single thing that we do, every part of us that we, that anything we think or feel or behave, every part has a function and so I encourage people to focus less on the symptom of the actual eating disorder and how it presents itself and infinitely more on what role does this part think that it's playing. So if someone is actively restricting and engaging in some really disordered behaviors or purging multiple times a day or is not nourishing themselves and is like in a very sick place, the approach then has to be, in my opinion, infinitely more linear because when someone is restricting, we're not taught this, like even on diets, when we're restricting, our brains aren't working properly. And so the body goes into a state of survival and stress because that's what the body knows to do is to keep us alive. And if our brains aren't working properly, we can't really do a decent deep dive in therapy. So instead of creating, you know, slow and intentional dives into this person's history and, and relationships. I'm encouraging a much more linear approach of, you know, I highly recommend that you seek an intensive outpatient or a higher level of care um, to get medically stable so that we can actually start engaging in the work that would be most helpful. Um, models of therapy that are known to be pretty helpful with eating disorders would be ACT or acceptance commitment therapy dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, which is really skills-based and great for emotion regulation, mood disorders, um, personality disorders, and then cognitive behavioral therapy, which helps challenge like repetitive anxious thinking. And so all this to say, I don't really have a one size method fits all for working with eating disorders. A common theme though, is that from my experience and what is most commonly used in the field for treatment, it is not necessarily possible if someone is really struggling with disordered eating behaviors and is wanting to get the most out of their care. It's not possible for me to be the only provider. So it's wishful thinking when someone comes to see me and they're restricting or binging or purging, I'm not going to 
be able to attend to all of it because a huge portion of eating disorders is related to food and that's not my lane. So I recommend that they're often seeking additional providers and that's registered dietitians educated in eating disorders that work from a Hayes perspective and also meeting with a Hayes informed eating disorder educated doctor. That's someone who will stay away from focusing on weight as being an issue because a lot of, I have so many horror stories from clients and then myself included where doctors have been super fat phobic um, and encouraging weight loss unnecessarily doing so much more harm and not realizing it because they're so bought into diet culture. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it really depends, but those I would say are the highlights. Okay, cool. It's a lot of different approaches. You know, I think, I think that we can't have a one size fits all approach, you know? Right. Exactly. Cause everyone's different. Yeah. So what are some signs that a family member or friend might notice that could indicate that their loved one is struggling with an eating disorder? Gosh, it depends on probably the eating disorder. I mean, some are probably going to be more obvious, right? Like the rumination disorder, if someone's regurgitating food or like the less body image related ones, like pika or pika would be if someone's like eating non-food items consistently, that's pretty dangerous. Uh, ARFID and anorexia look really similar, like I had mentioned. So if someone starts restricting and typically that's associated, not always, but that's typically associated with weight loss. Um, when, uh, biological, I'll say, um, bio females are when assigned, they, fem- assigned female at birth. Thank you. I was finding the right word. This is my weekend. Had I told my weekend, you <laughs> signed at birth is what I was looking for. Thank you. Which is, um, losing a menstruation. So a menorrhea, uh, or also highly associated with female assigned at birth athletes. Um, mm-hmm. if they're losing their period, malnourished, and that is really harmful for the reproductive system. Um, and so that is for probably more restricting clients, also orthorexia when someone is actively yo-yo or engaging in dieting or consistent, uh, cycles of dieting that's called yo-yo dieting or weight cycling. And so diets in general are, are often a sign of orthorexia um, because typically we know diets are assigned with a desire for weight loss and then often result in more intrusive thoughts when it comes to body image and, and food and weight loss and all of that. For bulimia, it can be pretty uh, sneaky. A lot of people will find ways of purging that become a bit of a routine or it's done in isolation. Um, And so there might be scarring on the back of the hand if someone is purging and using their fingers to do that. Um, They might have erosion on the teeth, but more often than not, it's when it comes to the body image related ones, it's a pretty obvious desire for weight loss and restriction and food, a lot more food and exercise rules. So why don't diets work? Oh my gosh. Well, (laughs) (laughs) that's such a big question. I'll just say, set point, set point theory is super important. 
so when I was talking about weight cycling or yo-yo dieting, most people have the experience of going on diets, losing some weight, and then gaining that weight back. 95% of diets on average fail and often actually result in weight gain because of our set points. So like I said, at the beginning when we were chatting about this is that again, it's most people desire weight loss because that's what our culture encourages and emphasizes and says, that's what makes us quote healthier. Even our medical system is bought into this and encourages weight loss often. And yet only five percent, there's body diversity. Like I had said, even if we all ate the same and move the same, our bodies would still look different. Um, because our genetics are what essentially determine our set point, which is the weight range and on average, anywhere from 10 to 20 pounds that the body performs most optimally and where it wants to be. Only 5% of the population roughly has the body portrayed in the media and as the sort of societal ideal for what a body should look like. Um, the, the body with like a ton of privilege and all this to essentially say when our body, and I've got a whole blog post on this, if this sounds confusing, that's on our website to explain that point, but our body sees dieting, not as a way to get healthier because it doesn't, it's prime for survival. It doesn't know that we need that to our bodies. It's keeping us healthy. When we diet, our body sees that as many famines. And so over time, we're essentially just going through many famines and, and our body sees a diet of starvation. And so our metabolism and our body, they work against us when we go below our set point. And then I know everyone's question is, well, how do I know what my set point is? It's the weight range at which your body typically settles in or around when you're not dieting or engaging in compulsive exercise behaviors. Um, and so that takes about six months on average from, at least from I know from dietitians to be using intuitive eating to get there and to heal someone's relationship with food in addition to healing their relationship with their body. So our set point is predetermined uh, by genetics. Primarily there is no research study to date that proves that we actually have any ability to change our set point permanently or at all. We can't change our set point and our weight can change. And yet if our weight goes over our set point, our metabolism speeds up and our body, like a, a thermostat in a room, it just automatically cools to bring our, our weight or temperature back down. Same thing when we go underweight, if our body is that uh, thermostat analogy again, which is in the book uh, by Body Respect by Lindo Bacon. If we go under a set point, that thermostat, essentially our metabolism will actually slow down so that the weight will creep back up um, because the body again thinks that we're in a state of survival and not trying to look better in a, and quotes, better um, to society based on diet culture and a bathing suit or something. So essentially evolution and mm -hmm. sur our survival instincts in our body keep us from being able to permanently lose weight. So interesting, yet like it's such a common thing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So as, as far as body image issues go, uh, what are some common body image issues that you work with? Um, primarily, I'd say just it's fat phobia. Um, I, I would say that 
when people are coming to see me, it's because they've been exhausted. Like they, they have either had pointed out to them or they themselves have come to the realization that they are exhausted being hyper-focused on weight loss and their bodies. And they want to improve their relationship with their body. Yet what's so difficult is you cannot develop a positive body image while you're still dieting because that is still an active attempt to change the body. And so if I'm someone's first stop as a therapist for mental health ever in relation to disordered eating, that, that is rare to be able to keep someone in therapy because it is a really, it's a grieving process, essentially mm-hmm. not the educa- re-education process, the grieving process of grieving uh, an ideal in your mind about what would make you better or worthy um, you know, skills or rules that had like kept you quote safe um, or feeling validated and confident and connected, you're now having to grieve that those actually caused a lot of harm and also grieve that if your set point is higher than what for decades you've been telling yourself your body should look like and that you've been so afraid of your body looking like, then that's, that's really challenging. So fear of gaining weight, fear of, you know, not, not being able to have the body that for years you've kind of been told or would be the ideal would make you better. Okay. Do you do any work with body dysmorphia? Yes, I would say there is a a substantial amount of body dysmorphia sort of that comes along with body image issues. Mm -hmm. More often though, I would say clear body dysmorphia is often like when a client couldn't stop thinking maybe about a perceived defect or flaw in the appearance. So an example with that of that would be maybe if a client was hyper fixated on their nose um, and just mm-hmm. when they looked in a mirror, that's all they could see. And so it is like a lot of anxiety and ruminating on this one feature that they end up feeling so, well, they, end up reinforcing a lot of super negative beliefs and they end up feeling so much shame and embarrassment around this potential flawed body part that they act, it interrupts their social functioning in their life. And that's all they can think about like a hyper fixation on this body part um, or, or maybe multiple parts of the body that sort of consumes them. Okay. Has there been any research related to individuals coping with body dysmorphia through body modifications such as piercings, tattoos, earlobe stretching, scarification, to name a few? No, that's a really, when, when you had sent me that question, that was one of the ones that I read and I was like, that is fascinating. I don't know is the answer. I have not come across, I'm sure there is, right? 7 billion people in this world. I'm sure someone's done some research on that. And yet I don't have the answer to that. But if someone finds that information, I think that'd be really cool. I think with body dysmorphia though, part of, because not everyone with body dysmorphic disorder has an eating disorder. So it is very possible that someone who is struggling with body dysmorphia is using other ways of coping unrelated to just like changing the bot, like the shape or size of the body. So I have to imagine, yes, in some ways, if someone's been like hyper fixated on maybe the way their ear looks, they could have tried to cover that up with certain piercings or something. Or their nose, maybe they like their nose better with their nose pierced. Like, exactly. Exactly. That's a 
sore subject. I just had to take my nose ring out. It was so cute. Oh no. Infection. I know I fell victim to that. So many of my clients were like, mine got infected. Be careful. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, <laughs> that was an unpleasant aside. Um, source yeah, no, no, uh, for, for sure. Like piercings, you know, they, they can be a pain in the ass. I used to have an industrial, but I ended up taking oh. it out because it would hit my glasses on my ear. And when I stopped, oh. it would, like, it was just so uncomfortable. I wound up taking it out and I'm sad that I did it, that I had to do it, but yeah, gotta do what we gotta do. I know. I know. So yeah, there probably is some research on that, but part of the issue with body dysmorphic disorder is that the hyperfixation essentially means that one piercing or the tattoos, it, it's not going to take away the fixation. Um, so I, I can get back to this in a bit. It just, it is hard because that probably wouldn't be long-term if they're not actually also addressing like the mental health component. Mm-hmm. Cause it's not just related to the body, like changing the body. Right. Right. Okay. Now, many people often confuse gender dysphoria and body dysmorphia. What is your understanding of the difference between the two? Well, body dysmorphia is much more related to like specific parts of the body that get um, the focus of being like bad or ugly or unattractive. And with body dysphoria, this is certainly not an area of specialty for me. And yet I have seen this working in uh, a psych hospital and working with transgender clients that there's, they've experienced gender dysphoria, which is the psychological distress that results from that incongruence between the sex assigned to birth and one's gender identity. Um, And so from my understanding, the gender dysphoria is the distinct difference like the to clarify that being transgender or identifying as a gender different from the one assigned at birth is not in itself a psychiatric disorder right right now some people argue that surgical procedures for body dysmorphia should be deemed just as medically necessary as those that are for gender affirmation surgery what are your thoughts on this this is such a good question. I'm glad that I'm glad that you asked this because the gender affirmation surgery changes the, from what I understand, changes the person's sexual characteristics to better reflect their identity, their actual identity, um, which is, again, certainly not specifically an area of specialization for me. So I'll own that up front. But what for my, from what I do know, the surgery support like improved mental health for clients struggling with the gender dysphoria because it helps them feel more at home in their body. The issue with broadly assigning the same mentality or values to body dysmorphia is kind of what I said with the tattoos and piercings is that most people who have body, just like actual body dysmorphia and they might get plastic surgery because they're generally dissatisfied, you know, with this part of their body, they're, they're actually typically more dissatisfied with the results because again, it's this rumination and accepted belief that this part of them is just bad and their brain has been trained to view 
this part or multiple parts of them in this way and this like the skewed perception that this these parts could be just like ruining their life and this often causes people to have multiple procedures and because more often than not if it's clinically diagnosable body dysmorphic disorder the issue isn't fixable with surgery um, the more effective way to treat this disorder is with cognitive therapies and SSRIs, like actual medication prescribed by a psychiatrist to help with those negative and repetitive thoughts. Now, what I think is interesting is if, you know, gender dysphoria, being trans isn't a psychiatric condition, then, but body dysmorphia is, then how come trans people have to get a letter from well, trans and gender expensive, expensive folks? How come we have to get a letter from a mental health therapist, but somebody with body dysmorphia, you know, that is a, a psychiatric disorder doesn't, you know, I think that's, that's very interesting to me. It, I think interesting is, is not it's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I don't know if that's strong enough of a word for that. I, I think you're pointing out what is such a, a continued massive flaw in the the medical behavioral health, what have you, plastic surgery system. This is it's so flawed, and I I can't answer that because I think so many so many practices that are still accepted. I mean, obviously you just pointed out that one, the use of BMI, it's still ways of um, like acceptable, I put that in air quotes, systemic oppression and mm -hmm. making it difficult for marginalized folks, people to take up space in authentic ways. And yes, that is, it's so flawed. So I, not that you said this, but I, maybe you, you would, I, that, that needs to be re reworked because I think the opposite is probably true. Like I think people with body dysmorphic disorder before they're getting plastic surgery would need to be exploring medication options and cognitive therapies before seeking out what would probably be like a litany of surgical procedures because you're satisfied or dissatisfied after each one, it's, it's still not what you wanted. Whereas someone with body dysphoria that actually has the research that backs up the improved mental health functioning. So it's a flaw mm -hmm. in our system. And the thing that I want to say about body dysmorphia is that there's a, a certain disconnect between the individual's perception of reality and like actual reality. Um, you know, and I think that that's different from gender dysphoria in that, uh, you know, gender dysphoria is an internal uh, perception. Um, you know, it's not necessarily, um, it's not, I mean, it, it is outside focus and that gender is what, you know, our gender presentation is what we show the world because that's how the world works. Um, but I think that it stems from our internal thoughts and feelings and, um, you know, rather than a, a fixation on something external. Although I think that gender dysphoria at times 
yeah, I mean, it can look like a, a fixation on some part of the body. Uh, but, you know, those parts of the body are typically, uh, you know, gendered in some way that isn't congruent for that person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to add that there. And, you know, yeah. I think it's a, I can see where a clinician who does not have a lot of experience with one or either uh, could become easily confused. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's why I wanted to address that. Yeah. And yeah, I'm so glad that you, that you asked the questions. And again, it got me thinking too about the, the, just the difference and bring it to my awareness as well. So, you know, another thing in working with the trans and gender expansive population is, um, you know, I've noticed that eating disorders are very prevalent. Um, to what would you attribute this? And do you think your approach uh, to eating disorders uh, is different when working with trans or gender expansive people? Sure. So I'll start with sort of answering part one first. So from what, and I'm sure you also could have plenty to add to this, and I hope that you'll jump in (laughs) as well. But from what I've seen, there's a lot of societal expectations and body image pressures on trans folks that can be really severe and dangerous because often society views an individual's gender validity on how well they're presenting um, or how close to the sort of societal norm they might be. And this has the potential to leave those who are struggling to achieve uh, or struggling um, with maybe like a transition to try to achieve unnatural ideals to fit a mold for what society would see as that like gender presentation um, or like the ideal for that in quotes. Um, And I, when you'd asked this question, I had like looked up some statistics also for uh, transgender youth, which is like in, in 2015, not that long ago, a study found that transgender youth are four times more likely to suffer from an eating disorder and twice as likely to engage in purging behaviors. And approximately 13 and a half percent of transgender college students will report using diet pills. 16% of transgender individuals have been diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, And while they have the highest rates of eating disorders, they often go without treatment and or medical care because they might never pursue eating disorder treatment because of a lack of access, a lack of knowledge. They might not have the financial privilege to be able to pursue that due to like also systemic discrimination in the healthcare industry. There might be healthcare professionals that don't know how to provide that care. That would be what that client might need. Um, Or they might not have, if a transgender client needs to go to a residential facility, they might not have the, the, like a separate room that that person might feel more comfortable with or other people at the clinic might have uh, transphobia um, and they might have an, an incredibly negative experience as a result of seeking that care. Um, and as far as the financial privilege of being able to seek care, the cost of treatment is often beyond what a lot of individuals are able to afford. So on top of all of that, there's very few specialized eating disorder treatment centers that have experience working with clients who are transgender. Um, And then 
I did a bit of like poking around for this as well and, and found that a decent amount of clients who start eating disorder treatment for um, who are transgender suffered a lot of microaggressions and negative experiences of lack of gender competence when they were seeking care. Um, and without treatment that's not tailored to someone's needs, um, they might often choose to just not pursue it in general to protect their sense of self and well-being. Um, and then there's all, of course, we don't have the time to get into all this, but then there's like cultural implications of there's a mm -hmm. decent amount of that person is um, part of a marginalized community um, or, you know, they have a culture that doesn't see the efficacy of mental health treatment, or they might be even further stigmatized. So that would make, those are all limitations to pursuing treatment. And as far as my approach to treatment, I think for myself, it's a continuous process of, of educating myself so that I am not asking my clients to do that for me as a person with an abundance of privilege. I am a cis heterosexual, um, Caucasian female and a thin a body with thin privilege. I, it's my responsibility to do the least amount of harm while providing high quality of care to my clients. And so in working with trans or gender expansive folks, I do need, it's not my lived experience. So I do need to be consistently educating myself and welcoming feedback and managing my own shame responses because it, I'm always learning and I can't be putting it on my clients to be educating me because then I create a very unsafe environment for them. Good. Uh, thanks for looking at those statistics. Uh, oh, sure. it's, it's an astronomical percentage. Um, you know, and, and I think what it is is, you know, as a trans person, I think there's societal and internal and even within the community, uh, a pressure to quote unquote pass, which now we're using a, a much more uh, appropriate term for that, which is cisgender passing privilege, because it, it is a privilege to be able to, uh, you know, not be visibly queer, <laughs> for lack of a, a better word. Um, but, you know, I think eating disorders are, are especially, and, and body image issues are especially prevalent uh, because folks don't feel masculine or feminine enough a lot of the time is, is what I run into. And, you know, just using trans women as an example, you know, they're subject to the same beauty standards and ideals as cisgender women. Um, and so the, the pressure to look that way becomes so great that I could see uh, eating disorders developing from that desire, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that's just scratching the surface on those things. Right, and I didn't, I mean, I, I don't have the, the statistics for this, but I have to imagine as well, like if some, if a teen, if a transgender teen um, grew up in a, maybe a really religious household or has parents that are, homophobic or transphobic, then maybe they either don't feel safe or comfortable to ask for, for help um, because of what might happen if they do. Mm -hmm. And so they maybe end up also wanting to 
maybe slow down the puberty process. And so mm-hmm. lean into restricting as a way to, to shrink the body if, if they don't have like that extra. Yeah, support. that's definitely possible for sure. Such a broad topic. Um, it's, it's so sad and it's, it's fascinating and it's heartbreaking. Agreed. So thinking about, you know, when I think about exercise, it's a healthy thing, right? But one thing that we do know is that too much of anything is never a good idea. Mm-hmm. Now I'm using the word here, if I enjoyed exercising, <laughs> how would I know when what I'm doing is compulsive in nature versus quote healthy? Mm. Um, this, and this is another one of those like really broad, broad ones. So I think it varies for a lot of people. A consistent theme that I see is that what motivates two things, two main things, one by getting really curious about what motivates someone to exercise. So when I provided education about what exercise is actually good for, what it, what is it effective for versus what, what is a myth that we've been fed by diet culture throughout the years. One of those things is that exercise actually isn't statistically significant for weight loss. Um, unless someone hadn't really been engaging in movement. And I make a distinction between movement and exercise, because in general, I would say a lot of us get movement throughout the day, maybe walking our dogs, going into the kitchen to make lunch, um, walking into the grocery store or Target or something like that's all movement, which our body needs and loves. So if someone is really sedentary and really not even moving, um, which a lot of people might've been like really stuck inside this past like year and a half and the weight creeps up, they start moving again more actively and the weight goes down. It might've just been because they weren't, uh, they did not have like a high energy expenditure and their body actually was craving that. But in general, exercise is not statistically significant for weight loss. So kind of circling back on that, when I share that with people and like the research on that, and I get some shocked responses and then people will say something like, well, why the heck? Do I run five miles then every day? What's the point? That tells you that there's some disordered compulsions there um, because if someone is just using exercise for a sole purpose of changing the body or weight loss, there's probably fear of gaining weight. There's fat phobia. Um, And so if you, if that person slowed down their exercise um, or if they, you know, limited the number of days and they became distressed, that is also a good sign that someone is probably using exercise compulsively because their anxiety spikes and they can't really tolerate not moving. Um, And the truth is exercise actually, I mean, it is really healthy. Like there's research that shows regardless of body size, um, again, people that move more typically live longer because there's so many health benefits associated with movement. The issue is if people are using exercise in a way that's compulsive and disordered, it actually has infinitely more negative consequences and reduces the likelihood that people will get positive benefits from exercise. So for example, if someone is using exercise compulsively and is not necessarily honoring their body's needs or boundaries or listening in to how their body feels that day, they might push themselves too hard, which could result in overtraining or injury, muscle tears, uh, fractures, potentially stress fractures. Uh, higher rates of internal criticism, anxiety, fear of fat phobia, disordered behaviors, exacerbating existing eating disorders. So 
it's, it, it is really important to stay aware and curious about seeking out, you know, what we don't know that we don't even know about mm-hmm. our habits for anything and specifically right. for exercise, because you could live longer if you use it right. And if you're, if you're not, uh, you could be doing a lot of damage to your body and, you know, yourself physically and mentally and emotionally. Yeah. What would you say are some common misconceptions about eating disorders, body image issues, and compulsive exercise? What do you see folks commonly say? Um, so uh, misconceptions about eating disorders, I will say from a provider perspective for any providers that could be listening. And I think this actually, you know what, this could be both. There seems to be a sort of an interesting, like really black and white mentality about what constitutes an eating disorder. Um, like until I opened up the DSM and read the behaviors and thoughts and, and all of that, that would be a diagnosable eating disorder. I had no idea that I could have met the criteria or that most people around me could have met the criteria for an eating disorder. Um, and so there's, I think one of the common misconceptions is that they just somehow, some people are just afflicted by them because they're more susceptible to, a, you know, developing an eating disorder when in reality, most people in our culture, at least, have a very uh, high risk of either developing an eating disorder or already engaging in disordered behaviors and have no idea. So they don't just pop up in isolation. A lot of clinicians that I speak to are like, oh, I don't work with eating disorders. And my first thing is actually, you absolutely do. You just mm-hmm. at, you might be struggling with your own yo-yo dieting or weight loss struggles or body image issues. So you, because you haven't done the work, you're perpetuating those harmful beliefs or missing opportunities to explore that with clients, which I'm sure, you know, rings true for every professional, but we can only do so much work with our clients as we ourselves have done. So it actually is a scary thing for me doing what I do and knowing how many therapists would say and have said to me, I don't work with eating disorders because yes, you do. You just don't know that you do yet. Um, And as far as body image issues and compulsive exercise, I would say people, a client specifically will say, I want to work on my body image. I want to gain more confidence and self-worth. And yet they're still engaging in so many disordered behaviors without realizing how harmful those things are. Um, and you can't just improve your body image issue. Like you can't just improve your body image. That doesn't happen in isolation. Right. You are, you are connected to your body. Your head isn't just like floating nine feet away. <laughs> so you need to actually he, like explore what harmful narratives you may have bought into throughout the years or limiting beliefs. You didn't even know to question like exercise is not helpful for weight loss and Sweating doesn't actually mean you're working any harder or burning more calories. Um, that that diet that you're on is actually just reinforcing this desire to change your body and reinforcing that your body isn't good enough and that it needs to change to be better. Those are just like a handful of examples of things that need to be challenged and explored in order to heal a relationship with body image and you know compulsive exercise. Most people don't even realize that it's their beliefs about exercise that they need a challenge before being able to actually change the behaviors. Mm-hmm. I feel that way about uh, clinicians 
like you do about eating disorders, but with trans and gender expansive folks, you know, uh, you know I think that cisgender therapists working with trans and gender expansive folks just have a lot of uh, internal work to do, I think, before it's, you know, we got to be mindful of the messages we send our clients about gender and even how we perceive our own gender, I think, in order to do that kind of work effectively. Um, so totally, totally understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. And I, that is in no way to like shame or wag my finger at any clinicians. It's sort of like, again, we can only do so much work with our clients that we ourselves have done. And so I understand that my lived experience and education absolutely impacts the work or lack thereof that I know to do with clients. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, switching gears a little bit here to to you as a clinician, um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, in a few examples? Mm, so I, and this is a question I'm so glad that you had asked, because again, I had to then think about what kind of experience do I have working with more vulnerable clients? And I would say, it's interesting to reflect on that and recognize just how much privilege plays a role in, in the vulnerable populations that I've worked with. Because when I really chewed on it, I was like, okay, I'm actually recognizing that most of those clients I've seen working in, for example, I'll start at grad school when therapy was, well, one, I was a student and always learning. And therapy was like $2 to $5 and I wasn't getting paid. I was working at like a family institute and getting hours instead of actual compensation. And so they could, you know, charge people like $2 to $5 and $15 kind of being a, like a high and, uh, you know, worked with this population in an inpatient psychiatric hospital and I think what was so interesting too is like going back to that that moment that we had identified the systemic constraints to both in that, you know, what would impact a transgender client's experience seeking eating disorder care. I mean, that there, one, I may not be like a safe experience for a client if what they're needing I haven't done enough work on, especially someone with the abundance of privilege that I do have. In addition to that, there's the financial piece is just so huge. And you and I, even outside of this podcast, have talked about this, that, you know, I accept a sliding scale for clients, but even my sliding scale doesn't go as low as a lot of clients might need it to. Um, and due to a history of, systemic oppression and discrimination, these folks may not have the financial resources to have afforded to see me in. But you accept insurance. So that's good. Well, yes. However, we've also talked about this. Like They might not even have access to healthcare, be able to afford insurance or be able to, you know, or the place that they work, they may not, especially if there's a lack of documentation there's such a lack of safety there in pursuing additional care because there's so much risk 
and such a lack of safety. So the word that just kept floating around in my mind is I've had limited experience because of the systemic privilege that, that a lot of clients might need in order to seek uh, additional mental health treatment. And the places where I have seen those, it's, it's therapy has either been like super accessible um, in terms of like a super low sliding scale or has been completely subsidized. Well, you know, my experience and, and the reason why I accept insurance, a lot of the uh, trans and gender expansive folks that I work with, uh, you know, adults are between like 18 and 26. And uh, those lucky enough to have some sort of family support, even if family isn't supportive, sometimes they still have the, uh, the, the resource. The good thing about that is that between 18, well, I guess... 26, you age out, but uh, you're, you're still able to be on your parents' insurance plans um, at that time, uh, which is, you know, when a lot of people are struggling and coming out, you know, and uh, transitioning and that sort of thing, if they're unable to get started sooner, which most folks are. So accepting insurance opens up the door for, you know, 18 to 26-year-olds to, you know, trans and gender expansive folks to get that that care, you know, if they have the ability, if they have the, uh, the support for that, you know, so that's, that's the reason why I accept insurance is because I've noticed a lot of, uh, the people I work with who are in that age group have insurance through family. Um, and and that's the way, the only means in which they're able to access any sort of service. Mm -hmm. Mm Well, yeah, I mean, I think, again, another huge piece of that that you named is like that, that support, mm-hmm. right? That's also a huge constraint. If the family isn't, you know, maybe doesn't know or like really is not supportive of that client, that's a huge barrier. Oh, yeah. To, to seek care. Yeah, it's hard. Mm-hmm. So when a new client makes an appointment with you, you know, a lot of folks, and I know, you know, when I've seen a therapist for the first time in the past, it's nerve wracking. You know, you don't know what you're walking into, especially if you learn about your therapist from a like site like Psychology Today that you're only able to have so much information about who you are, what you practice, etc. So uh, what what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? I like to set expectations early on because I think a lot of people, and I have to set this expectation for myself as well. Therapists, our job is not to fix people. I think a lot of people think that, you know, I think it's getting a little bit more mainstream now, but historically therapy was if you had a, a problem or an issue yeah. and that you had to go to therapy and it was a whole taboo, like, oh, you're going to therapy, you have issues. And what I, I try to sort of expectation set, my clients are 100% capable of making decisions autonomously on their own outside of therapy without my help. And because they made that decision, it'll be the best one for them because I never know more about my clients than they will know about themselves. Our, my responsibility as a therapist is to share experiences with them is to build a relationship because the greatest predictor of positive therapeutic outcomes is not the amount of tools I throw at someone or suggestions I give. It's the relationship that we build together. 
And so I, you know, I have clients come in that are feeling really nervous and I encourage them to take the pressure off of themselves to share every detail about their life with a stranger, but instead just get, get to know the, the person, get to know me yeah, and feel out if I even feel like a good fit for them and vice, vice versa. If what they're sharing with me, I feel like I can ethically uh, show up as the, the best provider, best version of myself with them. Um, and if I think that, and this happens, that someone will reach out and it seems like it'll be a good fit. And in the interactions I have in session, I'm noticing maybe that this person would actually benefit from something more like dialectical behavioral therapy, um, which is really skills-based. That's not something that I have uh, sufficient training in to be able to see that person. So I might give a referral out. And that, again, the, the experience that they're having is not just showing up and, and sharing their life. It's, or like telling me stories or getting a grade. It's that we're building this ongoing relationship where they'll show up and always get validated, have the, what they don't know, they don't know challenge, um, you know, providing a space where I can offer maybe some more education. It doesn't feel like a personal attacker, super critical. And how many relationships, because I can certainly count on one hand, maybe one or two fingers, how many relationships we have where if someone upsets us, we feel like we can just tell them really directly, hey, this thing that you said I did not appreciate or get really angry at that person, and they are going to validate our feelings immediately. Um, because my experience has been even growing up, I would get upset and people would get upset at me. Um, and I'd feel judged and internalized that I was a problem. And a lot of my clients have had that experience. And so it is really reparative to also build a relationship where you get to practice these really helpful exchanges and start getting new beliefs reinforced and challenging old unhelpful narratives um, like I'm not good enough or I'm unattractive or unlovable with someone who actually the intention is for you to show up and, and for them to see you and validate you, help you make sense mm -hmm. of what you think and, and feel and do. Yeah. And I think that that's where, you know, what you were just talking about regarding being able to have hard conversations like that. I think that that's where, uh, you know, as therapists, it's really important to model what that should look like, what the responses should be in those situations. And, um, you know, just kind of how, how to handle overall conflict, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love asking this next question. How would you say your clients describe or experience you? That's such a good question. Um, I'm really direct. I, my biggest growing edge in grad school is actually learning how to validate effectively and not make it seem like forced because I didn't get a ton of that, like authentic validation, not just like complimenting someone, but like the holding space and helping someone feel seen. So I would say I've also gotten called a, a language vulture. Um, I'm really... <laughs> love that. <laughs> I'm really big on, well, originally uh, I was called a form vulture in the exercise uh, field. And then 
I kind of joked about that with the client and they were like, yeah, you're, you're a language vulture. So I think maybe uh, direct and validating, I'm super val, I've got, it's a, you know, treated it like a growing edge and gave it a lot of energy. And so that's something that I feel, you know, pretty solid in is like authentic. I am also pretty dry. Like I don't probably give off a very like, and I can be wrong. I don't give off like a super warm and cuddly grandmotherly vibe, even though like internally parts of me feel like they're 80 years old. Um, I'm, I think I tend to sort of name things directly and trust that my clients are resilient, which a lot of them have not gotten before. They've been treated like they're fragile or a ticking time bomb. Um, and I, I can empathize. So I think I like to lead with um, validating and direct communication. And that I think helps really build the trust that I'm not just, when I say something, I'm, I mean it, I'm not just going to offer them more fluff. Right. Okay, cool. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Such a, this is such a like, What's the word? What's the word? Taboo. What's it? I don't know. Well, taboo, but also like I've gotten so many responses. So many people like disagree. I don't, it's just interesting. Where where are you at with that? A hundred percent. I'm both. I'll laugh and cry. I cried last week with a client. I don't like racking sobs. You know, I don't like provide that. Um, And I, if I am getting emotional because we, we, it's in, it's my belief, and I claim this individually, and not um, applying this to any other mental health professional. It's my belief that like I bring a lot of myself into my therapy sessions, of course, with appropriate boundaries. I'm not taking. I'm very sensitive about taking up space um, with my own stuff, which is why I go to my own therapy. It's like that's my space for that, and so at the same time, I the person that I am in session with my clients is, is with small exceptions, obviously, like who they'll see if they were to spend time with me outside of session. Um, and I want that to feel really authentic because again, therapy is dependent on the relationship that we're able to build. And so if it's my belief that if I were not able to access and express, um, my own feelings in therapy that I'd be missing it. I wouldn't be showing up as myself and it wouldn't feel ethical. I'd, I'd be missing a huge component of the work. Um, and from my experience, uh, the times that I have, and I would say laugh much more, but the times that I have become emotional and teary with clients, it has felt really powerful to share that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also reminding them that I'm a human being, like, dangerous to also be putting a therapist on a pedestal true very true so speaking of holding space how do you define holding space for someone well great question i think i'll go back to the like holding space is being able to slow clients down i'm gonna go back to also like the way that i do it is by seeking my own therapy I'm making sure that I can empathize without project. Um, and I don't, I don't um, 
it's not my goal in session to be seen. It's my intention to be showing up and support my clients in feeling validated and seen and helping them do that for themselves. So that could look like me taking accountability for, for slowing clients down. Like if they're sharing a story, like I'll, I'll kind of just say pause, wait, pause there. And I'll say, what did you just notice that you're feeling right then? So helping them like slow down, check in with their body, make that like mind body connection um, and encourage them to say, okay, what, and I'm big on parts language. So I'll say like, what, what are you feeling? What's that part of you that just popped up? What might that part be saying right now? Like helping them really listen to themselves start trusting um, that they can always put their feelings into a context um, that they can always put their, make sense of their thoughts, um, stripping the judgment away, helping them see that a lot of the criticism and shame that they might feel or have received was projected on them, not necessarily super authentic. So, you know, helping clients connect more intentionally with themselves in the moment um, and really stay curious and like keep um, getting uh, more tolerant of those feelings and those thoughts, getting more connected with and, and more easily able to access those when they pop up. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Hmm. I had to go through quite a, f- a few different options because I wanted to just like pick the one. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff. <laughs> I would say this sort of the broad one is I can only do so much work with clients as I myself have done and I'm willing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I... I'm not willing to be corrected in the moment or, you know, like earlier in our conversation when words escaped me and you were kind enough to provide me with the language um, female assigned at birth, like that moment, if I was not willing to manage my own stuff in that moment, that would absolutely get in the way. Um, And I wouldn't be able to help my clients, because I would be so focused on my, I would be able to effectively hold space. Like I had mentioned earlier, because I'd be so focused on my own stuff. Um, If I'm not challenging my own potential disordered beliefs around food and exercise and body image and all of that, I absolutely could not do that with clients. Um, If I'm not willing to be really uncomfortable it is unethical for me to ask that of my clients. Absolutely. Totally agree. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Hmm. I like the word practice too, because that's, that's in my answer. Um, I've learned that every single thing that I think and feel and act is is actually a choice. Um, even the things that feel like they're not a choice, they are. Like our reality is often like what we, what our brain has chosen or agreed to believe. There's a really good book, The Four Agreements, that does a whole deep dive into this, that 10 out of 10 I recommend. Um, and not that we want to think whatever it is. Like a lot of, a lot of thoughts we cannot control. So the goal isn't to control the thoughts, the intention is to recognize that whatever we're thinking is typically based off a pre-existing narrative. Like a part of us has agreed to believe a, 
a narrative like uh, weight loss is healthy or just linearly, that's it. Um, and if I am not willing to identify and challenge that, that's a choice that I'm making to keep reinforcing fat phobic beliefs and creating a really unsafe environment for, for myself and those around me. And that challenging isn't a destination, it's a practice. So mm-hmm. I come back to that word that I love. If I want to feel more at ease in my own body, you know, it's a lot of work, but there's not a one size fits all. And there's not a, a one handful of tools that I can learn that will lead me this really like enlightened place and this really s- static state where I'm then like just confident. I have to consistently be challenging the pre-existing wiring in my brain to reinforce and strengthen like, no, I'm an, I live in a culture where weight loss is glorified and I'm saturated in, in weight loss um, messaging. And yet here's the education that I have and, and personal lived experience that those things are not true. Um, so it's my job to consistently challenge those because in that way, if I'm not bringing my awareness to the, I don't knows that I don't knows, and I'm not actively staying curious and seeking new information and challenging existing narratives, I'm, I'm keeping myself stuck. Mm-hmm. And we're never done growing. No, totally agree. And, and you know, like, just as much as we're not done growing, I think that things naturally change, you know, like terminology may change over time. I mean, you know, entire bases of uh, ideas of what we thought, you know, were can change. And so I, I, I like to refer to it as a practice because I truly believe that's what it is. And I think it's a lifelong practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100%. So what do you do to take care of yourself? <laughs> well, um, I try to have a, a practice every morning that helps like set the tone for my day. So every morning I, I get up probably too early for a lot of pe- other people and which I'm, that was its own practice, had to get there. And I, try to do some sort of like movement to like really connect with my body, whether that's, you know, again, I bought that fun little mini trampoline. Like I'm in a eighties workout video <laughs> I and love it. around, which is super fun. Um, or I may be doing like some gentle yoga or I'm doing an on-demand like bar video or going on a walk, something that just like gets me in my body. And then I have developed a practice of meditating. So in a perfect world, I'd have like ample time to do that. Right now I'm kind of at like five to 10 minutes every morning, just to kind of get more connected with intentionally choosing my thoughts, slowing down, practicing, not getting too attached to things that come practicing in the present moment, which is essential for the work that I do is being just really present. And um, then I like to have a decent amount of caffeine. So I also <laughs> some like coffee. Just got very good at taking care or at uh, making lattes. So I'm not spending an arm and a leg getting uh, all the TikTok drinks that pop up on my feed <laughs> from Starbucks. Um, and I, so I learned how to do that. So I feel empowered and self-sufficient, which is a good way to take care of myself. 
and uh, I have cats. So I try to nice. take the time to play with my two like 18 pound boys. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and just like really check in with myself, like what I might be needing that day, whether that's connecting with family, friends, or taking more like me time and maybe reading. Are we talking about like waking up before 7 a.m.? We are. We are. Uh, I didn't used to. I told you it was a practice, but again, I'm a, I'm a walking library of recommendations. And so I read the book, I think like a month, which was actually recommended to me by a client. And it's, I mean, it's got some, I will highlight in advance. It's got some diety stuff in it because this is not the work that he does clearly. Um, and with that disclaimer, there's still like a ton of really amazing stuff in there. So if you can identify and knock away and, and don't give too much energy to the maybe diety recommendations or one-liners that he, he offers, there's some really, really good recommendations in there. Cool. I'll check that out. Yeah. I'm not, I would say my earliest is typically either 6.15 or 6.30. So people get up earlier than me, 100%. I know that. I feel like though, um, a decent amount of people I talk to would sooner get like a cavity drilled than yeah, no. I can't do before seven. And with the time changing and it not getting light till later now, you know, like, it's so hard. Oh, that hit me late. I was fine the first few days of, of daylight savings. And then I think I'm a, my fiance and I both agreed that it, there was like a delayed effect there. Yeah, I felt it too. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you define happiness? Yeah. I, gosh, this is so interesting. I've got a lot to say about happiness. Um, happiness it's interesting. I, I hear more often than not people coming in. I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. Um, my, my sister literally said that the other day, I just want to be happy. And yet I think to sort of put happiness as like a goal is a completely unrealistic expectation. And people unknowingly set themselves up to be disappointed, to feel like a, they failed because happiness isn't one static state. It's, and it's not just one feeling in my, my humble opinion. And again, this is, this is just like where I'm coming from is happiness is a fleeting cluster of feelings, not just a state of being. Um, I think happiness as a whole, kind of like an umbrella term goes hand in hand with comfort and gratitude um, and, and maybe like joy or excitement because mm -hmm if someone's saying, I just want to be happy, there's no way you can possibly operationalize that. It's like, okay, right. kind of looking off in the distance and idealizing happiness. And yet a lot of people are sort of, they have no actual tangible way to explain the feeling that they're even wanting. I just want to be happy. Mm -hmm. There's no point at which happiness is like an end point. It, it's a practice, again, of consistently slowing down, acknowledging the things that bring you feelings of joy and comfort. That's also part of my self-care is I like to list at the start of the day, three things minimum that I'm grateful for. Um, so beginning to develop an authentic sense of gratitude for things that are already in your life or moments that you've had that you might 
want to have again, getting to know yourself and, and meet your own needs. Um, because if we're just saying again, I, I just want to be happy. It's, I have such feelings about that. Um, yeah, no, I'm right there with you. There's also, I think a podcast, a former therapist recommended years ago, which was the happiness hypothesis and this sort of idea that we have a certain baseline. And there's also a book, the big leap. That's really good. It's tiny. This is like the eighth book I've recommended probably that, <laughs> that sort of dances around this as well. But this idea that there's a certain baseline for happiness, that's what the happiness hypothesis says. And for the big leap, it identifies a certain baseline for the amount of good stuff. I'll say that we, that we let ourselves experience. So like a certain amount of financial success or career success or love, um, connection, intimacy, all of that, that we feel comfortable with typically based on our upbringing um, and internalized limiting beliefs that we haven't even thought to explore. And, and so typically what the big leap outlines is, is when we go above that, we find a way to subconsciously self-sabotage and bring ourselves back down. So we're, it's like yo-yo dieting. We're in this constant state of, and it gives us purpose of pursuing something that is totally intangible. And it's only when we like learn how to connect with ourselves and what explore what we're needing um, and heal those maybe more vulnerable parts of us and help ourselves feel seen that we're going to be able to practice presence, gratitude, and feel more content and at ease. Yeah, totally. I'm going to have to check that book out. That sounds, and that podcast sounds very interesting. Yeah, um, it's really good. I appreciate the book recommendations and I'm sure our listeners will as well. So thank you for those. All right. Um, the next questions are a little vulnerable. Yeah. First one is, what is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? I, I think it just depends on like the definition of embarrassing because I, I'm sure I do and say embarrassing things all the time or things that if other people imagined being me would make them cringe and they make for fun stories and even better learning experiences. I don't know that I get embarrassed often. I think and instead of embarrassed, I think I felt shame a lot more and I've had to get much more familiar with what that feels like for me and like what's coming up mm -hmm. um, because I think it's those tiny moments even like when I get when I say something or I'm floundering and I get corrected, I think it's really easy for a part of me having experienced a, you know, a, a decent amount of criticism, like a lot of people have growing up to kind of shrink and a part of me start just running, being like, oh my God, that, you know, they hate you. They don't want to listen to you. You're so unprofessional. You, all that stuff, you know? And there's plenty of moments that make me want to like cringe and shrink. And that's, you know, my, my own work because the moments that stand out to me that I might've felt embarrassed or feel that cringy feeling when I actually sit with it. And of course, like hold space for it. What actually comes up is like those super vulnerable young parts, as I would call them, like the young parts of me 
that are like at, at the core saying things like, oh my gosh, I, you know, Brene Brown would have a field day with this. I, I made a mistake. And so that person is thinking I'm bad and I must be bad. I must, you know, everyone must be judging me, all that stuff. So there's too many of those moments probably. And yet the discomfort is what supports the growth. So I would say I'm grateful for it, for all of them. And I'm sure everyone really has those, but that's what, that's what helps us learn. And you asked for a, a moment. So I'll just say one of the most embarrassing, shameful moments for me that I can remember early on in my career was being one of the first people in my cohort to see clients and being a first year in the program. It's two years. And I'd seen a, a mom and her two younger kids and um, had already felt a lot of imposter syndrome, even doing this work. So so early on and, a, and, a, and there's a knock on the door and I had thought I had like 10 more minutes. And in reality, I'd gone over time because there was another clinician that needed to use the room. And we were supposed to leave like 15, 10, 15 minutes in between for transition. And I lost track of time. I wasn't looking at the clock. And this clinician came in and just second year um, ripped me apart in front of my clients and had said, "That's you know, awful." Oh yeah, it was it was horrible. And it, this clinician was just uh, like yelling at me in front of my clients. Didn't even say, "Hey, do you mind? I have a session coming up." And so immediately, and this is that's also part of it is immediately I was totally filled with shame. And then I was, I rushed my clients out. And then my client that night um, tried to fire me because then on top of that, she had said, you know, that was so unprofessional. And so it was this whole just awful, mucky experience of, of really shameful experience. Like one moment after the next, um, I did a lot of crying that evening. And I mean, for all that other clinician knew, like, you could have been in the middle of a crisis, you know, like, yeah, well, that was not an appropriate response. Well, and that's, that's the validation that that parts of me needed in that moment that I didn't get my first inclination. Again, that's the shame is, Oh my God, you're so unprofessional. You're so it's like, I didn't even think about that piece. Right. As a young clinician with imposter syndrome out there. I mean, still struggle. I think most people, professionals still struggle with that. I just felt like, oh my God, that, that person knows best and I messed up and the whole thing. So ultimately looking back, of course, I, I agree with you um, 100% of there's so many other ways to handle it. And yet when you're put in a situation where that where there isn't actually any space held for that piece, where, mm-hmm. where the clinician didn't come in and say, you know, hey, I don't mean to interrupt um, did you know that you're over time when I wasn't given the benefit of the doubt, I didn't take up any space with, with any thought that that could have been true. I just felt like the right. worst thing in the world in that moment. So of course, well, I'm, I'm sorry you had that experience. That's awful. And uh, that other person would jerk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably also struggling with some stuff. I think. Of course. I goes- mean, that's the reason why people act that kind of way. Right. Yeah. And I think it kind of goes without saying that if we're not doing our own work, we bring that into our work. And I think that's an example of that. Now, uh, I believe you answered this question earlier, but just to cover it again, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy yourself? 
and uh, you've answered this like 10 times over. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it's an, it's an ethical issue. Like right. I am really transparent with my clients. Like I'll mention this too. It's like, I know that, that we're sort of challenging that internalized stigma of people who have issues seek therapy. And yet if I'm in sharing with clients, like, no, like, even if you don't have a story of the week or a traumatic thing that happened, like the intention of therapy is not to fix your issues or fix you. Cause there's nothing right. broken. It's to create right. a relationship that feels safe and validating. And I don't think we can ever have enough of those. So yes. I am really open that hundred percent I'm in therapy. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? Mm. Covered a lot today. We did cover a lot. I know. <laughs> um, not probably nothing you didn't already ask. I'm I'm sure there's things, but I have a a weird. I don't really want a laundry list. Just the facts. But I think if if there are clients that were listening that found that found themselves intrigued and wanting to learn more, I have an online because there's only one of me. Actually, I have an identical twin, but she's not. In <laughs> <laughs> so there's, I suppose there's technically two versions, but they're, they're very different versions. I'm not an actual duplicate copy paste, which I don't know that I would even want that. Uh, I made a, a course to help people learn how to exercise. The tagline I, I like recently is smarter, not harder. So learn how to, uh, challenge and even become aware of the I don't know that I don't know is regarding diet, health, movement, all of that. And it's called the entire the intuitive movement masterclass. So that's on our website. Um, and it's a great way to I think at your own pace, be challenging yourself. And there's a workbook and journal prompts and all of that to dive a little bit deeper. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah, I, th- I mean, it's so fun to do those. And then I'm just realizing too that personally also if I if I were going to do something like that I'd I'd want a bit of hand holding probably so for those that are very uh, you know pun intended aut- autonomous okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and want to just do the course 100% I think that's a you can definitely get benefit from that um, and I'm looking to start putting the the fixings together for an actual a workshop or group to incorporate that for people to also get a bit of um, group connection while doing this exploration and also be um, be able to see more clients at once. Because again, yeah. there's one of me. As far as clinicians, right. I'm so passionate about educating and connecting and as I'm sure you are as well. I, I know that you are. So I definitely find ton of meaning in that. And so if there's clinicians that are also looking to do the same thing as I'm encouraging clients to do, because as clinicians, we, we are also clients. I highly recommend that course as well. And to reach out um, because I, I love consulting with professionals on how to incorporate this education into their work with clients. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the show, Kim. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. This episode wraps up the second season of the podcast, and I am very excited about the lineup for the next season, which includes such topics as generational trauma and in utero processing, religious trauma syndrome, and working with non-ordinary experiences, just to name a few. The new season will kick off on April 18th with an episode featuring Jennifer Bomber, Licensed Professional Counselor Associate, supervised by Brittany Neese, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor, who will be discussing her practice and area of specialty, Counseling for Performance. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash nextquestpodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.